Dear Lord, we thank you for your graciousness to us in giving us your word. Uh, we thank you that it speaks life to us. It is living and active and it can uh, change hearts and it can give us all that we need for life and godliness. And we pray, Lord, as we come to it, that you would uh, use it by your spirit to make us more like your son, that we might glorify your name here on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so today is actually the, the first Sunday of 2020, and uh, so I thought it appropriate that we could start with looking at New Year's resolutions. Uh, I don't know if that's a thing that you do. I don't think I've done any or many in my life, but um, it does seem like a, a suitable time. The idea of a resolution is that we take stock of our life and we think about what sort of things we want to prioritise, what sort of things we want to make important in our life. Um, and so people then make resolutions at the start of the year to try and fix all of the mistakes that they made through the last year and to try and get their priorities right. And so um, you, can, you can see how that works by looking at common resolutions. I, I did some research for you and some of the most common New Year's resolutions relate to eating, dieting in particular, exercise, exercising more, not, not less, interestingly, uh, money, budgeting and so forth, and increasingly, I think, on lots of the lists I looked at, looking after yourself, putting yourself first, doing things for yourself, and also another, maybe a new one is um, moderating your technology use and sleeping more came up a lot. Uh, here are some really specific ones that I thought were kind of fascinating. Sanitize your phone weekly. That was one you could go for. Delegate more chores, which I thought was kind of tricky because whenever you, you can't, not, not everyone can do that without getting more chores. But um, Wear workout gear that makes you look good. Just, just an idea. Um, write letters to yourself because an expert tells us, we have such a hard time channeling compassion for ourselves. And so you could write nice letters to yourself. Uh, give yourself more compliments and be kind to yourself. And I, I was also pleased uh, to see, read more on a few lists. Um, if Here's a little new thing, another thing you can know about me, I run a bookshop, so I can heartily endorse that one. Uh, but today what I thought we, we should do is take stock of our lives and consider what we should put as priority, what we uh, should see as important in our life and what we would want to change and see more of. What will we put first in this new year? And so the text we're looking at is John chapter 15 verses 1 to 11. And the context of this actually suits um, this, this idea of of thinking about what's most important because the context of this passage is that it's just before Jesus' death. Uh, in, in chapters 13 and 14, Jesus is enjoying the last Passover with his disciples in the upper room. Uh, he's um, had the, the, the Lord's Supper. That he's he's um, just done for the first time with his disciples and he's giving them instructions, very important instructions in these three chapters about what they should do and what's important when he returns to the Father. 
Um, and so he's in the start of chapter 15, he's just left the upper room and he's probably walking on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. These are the, the last few words that he's going to say to his disciples. And so obviously this must be, these must be very important truths that he wants them to remember and, and build their lives upon when he returns, uh, when he is, is ascended to the Father. And so let's come to this text and see what it is that Jesus wants us to put first. And uh, I'll, give the, I'll give you the answer straight up and then we'll dig into it. The answer is him. The answer is we're putting Jesus first and he's calling them to be united to him and, and joined to him in an abiding, continual, remaining sort of way where he says, I want you to build your lives on me. That's his advice for your New Year's resolution. And so let's come to the text. And the, the first thing, I want to look at this in two, two sections. The first section is I want to show you what it is that, that is going to be generated in your life as a result of being joined to Christ, really the, the importance of being joined to Christ and united to him. And the second thing is uh, a few ideas that Jesus gives us as to how to remain in him, how to abide in him. And so the first thing that Jesus comes and he, and he uses this metaphor to describe how we should be joined to him. He says that he is the true vine. Jesus is the vine and his disciples are the branches that are joined to the vine. And he even brings God the Father in. He says that the Father is the vine dresser or the gardener who tends the vine and cares for the vine. Now, every true Israelite who heard this would have something else in their mind. And that's why the, the text Psalm 80 uh, was listed there. And you can um, have a look at it later, perhaps. But there's, there's multiple places in the Old Testament where Israel is called the vine. Israel is the vine that God planted out of Egypt. Israel is the vine that God wanted to grow up and be fruitful and spread over the earth. But they did not bear fruit for God. And so when Jesus comes and he says that he is the true vine, what he's saying is that he is the true Israel. He is the true fulfillment of passages like Psalm 80, where the psalmist calls God to re renew the, the vine of Israel. And how do we see that fulfilled? But in Christ, in Christ, we see the true vine growing up, bearing fruit for God. He was planted by God. He will grow large and strong and bear much fruit. He will be this answer. And so as we think about this metaphor of, of the vine, you, sh you should think of Jesus as the roots and the trunk and then his disciples as the branches spreading out. And the branches obviously feed off the trunk. They are nothing without the trunk. As we, as we saw in, in that kids' talk illustration, right, the you, you know that if you break a branch off a, a vine, it's, it's gone within a few days. They, the branches are intimately connected. They, they feed everything. All life and nutrients and water come from the roots and the trunk. Even the fruit that appears on the branch, you might think, oh, the, they, 
that comes from the branch. But even the fruit is, is only there because it's joined to the trunk and to the root. The branch must be joined to the vine. And so, Christian, and so all humans, you must be joined to Christ. All of your life, all of life comes through union with him. There is only life by abiding in him, by being joined in him. And there's four benefits, there's four results of of this union with Christ that we see from this text. And the first is life itself, just human flourishing. It is clear from, from this analogy that Jesus chose that being united to him is absolutely essential for life. It is only branches who are joined to the vine that will live. And he he even says it explicitly in verse 6, that those who are not abiding in him will be thrown away and they will wither and they will die. So life only comes by being joined to Christ. The second thing we see is fruitfulness will only come by being joined to Christ, by being united to him. We see this all through the passage. In fact, it seems to be the main emphasis that Jesus is is placing here, that branches that abide in the vine, that are united to Christ, will be fruitful. In fact, we see the Father, Son, and Spirit coming together here to produce fruitfulness, and we'll, we'll explore that a little bit later. But we must ask the question, what is this fruitfulness that he's describing? What is the fruit that will appear as you are joined to Christ and united to him? And there's a, there's a bunch of different ideas out there. One idea is that fruitfulness is the salvation of sinners around you, the salvation of the lost as you go out and preach the gospel, which is sort of keeping in, in with the idea that Jesus talks about the harvest. He sends his disciples out into the harvest uh, one other idea is that it's loving others, and that uh, comes from the fact that the, the flow of the text, as we read, was that this, this fruitfulness and abiding in him will result in disciples who love one another. But I think more likely this is referring to the fruit of the Spirit, a changed character, Christ's likeness, becoming more like him, having love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and truth. You see, the fruit is the sign that the branch is joined to the vine. The fruit is the, what you should see. The, the fruit is the thing that you would look for to see whether or not the branch is joined to the vine. And that's, that's what we see in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's that thing that you should look for in, in Christians. You should see them growing in Christ-likeness. You should see them changing in their character. That's what you should see in yourself. You should see you becoming more like Christ as you abide in him. And actually, this this way of looking at the fruit encompasses the others as well, because anyone growing in love and kindness and truth will be seeking the salvation of the lost and will be loving those around them. And so I think here, as, as if you're looking for fruitfulness in your life, if you're, if you're wanting to see change in your character, and, and if you're wanting to be conformed to the image of Jesus, then this is how 
It is done only by abiding in him, by being united to him and joined to him as the branches to the vine. That is the only way to true change. The third thing we see is joy. In fact, this is the reason Jesus gives for telling us that he is the vine. In verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You see that the Christian life, the life lived in Christ, in union with him and in communion with him, in life with him, is a joy-filled life. This is the only way to have a joy-filled life. All other areas that you might go to seek joy will fail and will dry up and become, and become distasteful to you over time. But in Christ, there is fullness of joy. There is pleasures evermore at his right hand. Even though the Christian's life is often full of grief and suffering and loss, even in those things, there is great joy when you're in Christ. And part of the reason is some of the things that Joel even prayed for this morning, that in Christ we have a greater hope than this life. Our joy and our happiness is not dependent on our circumstances, on how well your finances go in this coming year, on how well your relationships go in this coming year, but our joy is based on the fact that our sins are forgiven, that we stand in clean white robes before God the Father, that we have an eternal hope, a future in heaven secured for us by Christ. This is where true joy is found. And the last thing that we see that will result from you being joined to Christ is glory to God the Father. In verse 8, Jesus shows us that one of the results of abiding in him is the glory of the Father. Just as a well-tended garden brings praise to the gardener, the Father is glorified when the vine made up of his Son and the people he has given his Son flourishes and bears much fruit. In fact, this gives us great confidence that God will work in our life because we see that that this is a a Trinitarian work, that all all the three persons of the Godhead are working together in the vine, in the branches, to produce this fruitfulness because we know that God is always after his glory. That's what God loves. And so the Father is the gardener who will tend and prune us, cutting off our sin and producing the conditions for fruitfulness to ensure that we bear fruit so that he receives the glory. And Jesus is the vine, the the source of all the nutrients and and life and, and truth that we need. Why? Because Jesus' great driving force is his Father's glory. How will he not then give you all that you need if you are abiding in him to be fruitful for the glory of his Father? And it's the Spirit himself that joins us to Christ, it is the Spirit of Christ who lives in us, and his great joy is to see glory come to the Father. And so how will he not keep you joined? How will he not maintain that union and bring you close to see the Father glorified? The glory of God should be our great desire as well, and so we should delight to to abide in Christ that we might flourish 
and bear fruit to the glory of God. You see, it is only by being joined to Christ, to being in Christ, that anyone can have life, joy, and fruitfulness. In fact, this is true of everyone, not just Christians. Jesus says that without him, you can do nothing. In verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's far worse than that. Because Jesus says that if you are not a fruitful branch, drawing all your life from him, you will be cut off. In verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. And every branch that does, not bear, fruit, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So the Father cuts off those branches that are not abiding in Christ and bearing fruit. And in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. You see, the consequences of not being joined to Christ are frightening. A worthless life, death and eternal judgment await. I've just been reading Dante's Inferno, apparently a classic, and um, it's uninspired, but it is a frightening description of hell. Rivers of fire unending anguish, terror, hopelessness, unceasing pain. This is what all branches outside of Christ will face. This is what all people who are not joined to Jesus will face. And so at the beginning of this new year, please stop for a while and consider, are you joined to Christ? Are you united to him? Do you trust him as your saviour? Is, is his life going to be counted as yours? Is his death counted as your punishment that you deserve? Is he yours? Does his resurrection belong to you? Because without him you can do nothing of any eternal value As hard as you try, all your works outside of Christ will come to nothing, and without him, you are not safe. Without him, there is no life and no joy, and so run to him today. Cast yourself on him and plead for mercy. Ask him to join him to yourself and to make you a a branch united to him and joined to this vine. But Christian, this this statement of Christ is true for you as well, that without me, you can do nothing. At times, as Christians, we think that that Jesus is essential for our salvation, but then after that, we can seek to press on in our own strength. It's up to me to kill that sin in my life. I need to come up with a brilliant way to present the gospel to my friends so that they're saved. My work will only prosper if I work hard and come up with genius ideas. My relationships will only work if if I get it right and say the right things. But we must realize that without Jesus, we can do nothing of any eternal good. 
the only way your parenting in 2020 can be of any value is if it is done in Christ. The only way you will achieve anything of any value at your work is if you work in the strength of Christ. The only way you will overcome your sin is if you attack it in Christ. Union with Christ, abiding in Christ, being joined to him, communing with him is essential in this coming year and in all of our lives to our joy, fruitfulness, our life and the glory of God. And so it is very clear, isn't it, from this passage that we must abide in Christ. We must be joined to him. We must live in him. We must be like branches to the vine, firmly attached and drawing all that we need from the trunk and the roots. But then the question becomes, how do I do that? How do I abide in you, Jesus? And there's two angles that we could look at to answer this question. The first answer may well be that union with Christ is a mystery, that it is worked in us by the power of God. We can't join ourselves to God. We can't join ourselves to Christ. The Spirit of God must do that by coming in and invading our hearts, by dethroning our idols and giving us the gift of regeneration, a new heart. And this is certainly true. This is the only way that you can be joined to Christ, is by God coming and working in you. That is why we must plead to him for mercy. But the other aspect is that, that Jesus teaches us in this text that there are, are ways, there are things that we can do to grow in union and communion with him, that we can grow to, in, in the way that we're joined to him. It's, it's amazing that God condescends to give us things that we can actually do to be joined and closer to him. The theological term for, for these things is the means of grace. And really all this means is that there are certain activities that God has decided to use in his wisdom to make us more like his son and to give us life in his son. And the first of these that we find in our text is Jesus' words or the Bible, the word of God. In verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Here Jesus compares abiding in him to his words abiding in you. He says there's, there's, there's similar things going on. So practically, practically, what does this mean? Well, it means letting Christ's word dwell in you richly. It means reading the Bible. It means thinking about the Bible, discussing the Bible, studying the Bible, building your life on the Bible, knowing the Bible. Consider how much value God puts on his word. Listen to this. He calls it the sword of the spirit. It is the only offensive weapon in the armory that God gives in Ephesians 6. The word of God. In Philippians 2, Paul calls the Bible the word of life. It's the source of life. It's the source of truth and wisdom. The writer of Hebrews says it's living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Peter says 
it's living and abiding and it's able to bring new birth. And in 2 Timothy, that great passage, we know that it's, it's through God's inspired word that the man of God can be made complete and equipped for every good work. God puts great value on his word. And really, how can you expect to live in union with Christ and in communion with him without the light that he has provided for your path, the word of God, without his very words? It's through God's word that he reveals himself to us. In the Bible, we learn what God is like and what he's done, his great and precious promises and his law that is perfect, reviving the soul. And so as we go into this new year, I pray that you see the crucial importance of abiding in Christ. And I trust that you see how reading, studying and sitting under the preaching of God's word is a crucial means to continue to live in him. The second thing that Jesus notes as being related to abiding to him is prayer. In verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Here Jesus is saying that if you abide in him, you will be a prayer. If reading the Bible is us hearing from God, then prayer is us talking to God. This is communion with the triune God. This is relating with him and living with him. And why wouldn't you be a prayer? Look at this promise that he makes. Ask what you wish and it will be done for you. A remarkable promise. Although doesn't it seem to jar with the Lord's Prayer? Where in the Lord's Prayer we're commanded to pray, your will be done? Are we to ask for God's will or do we ask for whatever we wish? Well, you see, when we're abiding in Christ and when we're being shaped by his word and his promises and his law, we will more and more desire what he desires. The ESV Study Bible puts it this way. If God's people truly abide in Jesus, they will desire what he desires and will pray according to his words. I don't know if you noticed in, in the prayers of your, your elders this morning, there was a lot of Bible. Sometimes they were just alluding to it or quoting it, but they were, they were very much praying the words of God. And why wouldn't God want to answer those prayers as we're abiding in him and letting his word dwell in us richly, changing us and shaping the way we think? Part of the reason that prayer is an expression of our union with Christ and is a means of grace is that fundamentally prayer is an expression of dependence. This fits with the vine analogy, right? The Christian will see their utter dependence upon God and will cry out to him in prayer. This is what J.C. Ryle says about abiding in Christ. He says, this is him putting words in, in Jesus' mouth, if you like, abide in me, cling to me, stick fast to me, live the life of close and intimate communion with me, get nearer and nearer to me, Roll every burden on me. Cast your whole weight on me. Never let go your hold on me for a moment. 
And a, he's, he's not actually talking about the prayer part of the passage there, but as I read that, I thought, have you heard a better description of prayer? That's what prayer is. It's grabbing hold of Christ and saying, I know that I need you for all my life, for my joy and for my fruitfulness. Please give me all I need. And so if you want to abide in Christ, pray. Lastly, Jesus points to obedience as a way to a, another way to abide in him, to live in him, united to him. In verse 9 and 10, he says, Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Sproul thinks that, R.C. Sproul, thinks that the translation here misses something of the meaning. Jesus is not saying that you must keep his commandments before he will love you. Instead, he's saying that your obedience will flow out of his love for you. Abiding in his love will lead to obedience to his word. This is similar to what Jesus says in, in, back in chapter 14 where he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He, he loves us and we love him as a result and keep his commandments. You know, it's, it strikes me that we teach our children songs that capture this essential aspect of the Christian life but can at times forget its simple truth. We teach our kids trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. It's that simple, the Christian life. We trust in him and we obey him. This is the essence of the Christian life. John Calvin put it this way. He said, how far has he progressed who's been taught that he is not his own? He's saying, if you know you're not your own, you've progressed far who's taken rule and dominion away from his own reason and entrusted them to God. For the plague of submitting to our own rule leads straight to ruin, but the surest way to safety is neither to know nor want anything on our own, but simply to follow the leading of the Lord. Trust and obey. And when we consider continually Christ's love for us when we live in his love in the light of his love how he took upon himself the wrath of God stored up ready to consume us how he loved us so much that he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant suffering the constraints and difficulties of our sinful world he who angels worshipped who dwelt in unapproachable light in the bosom of the father became obedient to death, death on a cross, cruel nails, hung, naked and mocked, suffering not just the physical pain, but the emotional and spiritual torture of being cut off from God the Father as he turned his faith away, face away and poured out unimaginable wrath upon his son. And why did Jesus do this? In John 17, 24, Jesus tells us, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory 
that you have given me. Jesus suffers all this for you, his people. Jesus gave up all of this, all of his, his kingly authority in, in heaven and came to earth because he wanted you, Christian. This is the, the love that Jesus has for his people. And in dying, he bought you. In rising, he owns you. You are not your own, is what Calvin was saying. You've been bought at a price. You are not your own. You belong to your husband, Redeemer. You belong to your God who loves you. And so don't you want to be near to him? Don't you want to live closer to this God who has great, such great love for you? Well, if you do, consider this. Ed Welsh puts this wonderful spin on the concept of holiness. He says, instead of considering your growth in Christ as progressive sanctification or uh, getting more and more holy day by day, instead think of it as progressive nearness. Sin, he says, separates, even after we are made holy in Christ through justification. When we turn from sin, we turn back to the light and to life, and we experience fellowship with a clear conscience. God's laws are instructions about how to be in relationship with him. Obedience is a means to an end, he says. Obedience serves the purpose of our communion with God. Obedience brings us near Obedience is one way that Jesus teaches us that we can abide in him. And so as we head into this new year, I pray we will all have great comfort at being united to Christ, the true vine. I pray we will all grow in the life, the joy, the glory and the fruitfulness that true union and communion with Christ brings. And I pray that we will see how these common means of grace, these simple ways that God's provided for us to abide in Christ, are not burdens to be borne, but a joy, life, fruitfulness, and glory. What a wonderful God we have who would condescend to provide us such ways to, for us to draw near to him and to be living in him. And they're so simple that a child can do them. They're so rich that the greatest intellect will ever find them full of wonder. And so deep that we can commit to them for a hundred years, or maybe a thousand or more, and never find them dull. We began with some, some resolutions, some New Year's resolutions, so let me leave you with a, a few of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions which I hope will not weigh you down, but will encourage you to press on. Resolved, he says, to improve every opportunity when I am in the best and happiest frame of mind, to cast and venture my soul on the Lord Jesus, to trust and confide in him, 
and consecrate myself wholly to him, that from this I may have assurance of my safety, knowing that I confide in my Redeemer. Another one, he says, resolve to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. And lastly, he says, resolved to strive to my utmost every week to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. And perhaps you could sum them all up by saying, resolved to abide in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have provided Jesus for us. Lord, without him, we are dry sticks on the ground. Without him, we have no hope of fruit. We have no hope of glory. We have no hope of joy. And so we pray, Lord, that you would join us and knit our hearts to his, that you would work in us by your spirit and change us and make us more like him, that we might be nearer to him and might be dwelling in him more and more. And we pray that you would be with us in this coming year and that you would keep us close to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>